Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Everybody, it's Bob again. I've got The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and I've got Alec Epstein with me today. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, glad to be here. So, A Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I know a bunch of people in Vancouver that'll be, no, there's no moral case for fossil fuels. How can you say that? But I think there is. I think, you know, you can't just deny it 100% and say, no, it's an evil thing. We, we cannot have it. And... Um, go there. So let's talk a little bit about the premise of the book. Why do you think the book is important to come out now? Well, first, it's interesting, even the way you put it, that people say there can't be a moral case for fossil fuels. And then you mentioned, well, you can't deny it uh, 100%. And those are actually the two views that exist. One is <laughs> one is that fossil fuels are an, are an unnecessary evil. That is, we can just get rid of them. They're, they're this evil addiction, and we can and should get rid of them very quickly. But then the usual counter to that is, well, no, they're a necessary evil. We need them for now, and we have to get rid of them slowly. And my view is, no, actually, they're a superior good. We, we use them because they're the best technology for the job the vast majority of the time, and we should continue to use that uh, as, long as, that's, as long as that's the case. So the premise of the book is that if you look at, at the morality, which in my view means the benefit to humanity or harm to humanity of fossil fuels, and you look carefully at all the positives, all the negatives, and all the alternatives, you'll conclude that we should be using more fossil fuels, not less. Yeah, and I'm going to jump in there and say I, I think the big evil thing is actually the the gross waste of fossil fuels. Is we have it's a limited resource. It's it's basically magic. We we're able to do amazing things in, in in surgical procedures because of it. We have an amazing lifestyle because of it. Um, we're actually not depleting other resources because of it because it's a more efficient way of building specific things. But we waste a tremendous amount of fossil fuels. Do, so do you think that is the underlying problem? No, and it's an interesting perspective to call it magic because the magic didn't exist 300 years ago at all. <laughs> now, there was just as much or more of the stuff underground. You mentioned it. It's finite, which is true in a certain sense. So there was coal that existed as coal back then that just later became you know, carbon in the atmosphere, hydrogen in the atmosphere, uh, different part particles in the atmosphere, etc. So there's less coal, there's less oil, there's less gas in a certain sense than there has ever been. But those were completely unusable and therefore useless until the human mind turned them into resources. So you can say, well, aluminum is magical, but aluminum is naturally useless. So my, my conception of resources is one of unlimited potential abundance because resources are just unusable raw materials that the human mind transforms to be usable. And even with uh, so-called finite oil and gas, what we keep finding is that we're not running out of them, we're running into them. This is also true of coal. And that's because the, the raw material of this kind of hydrocarbon material, which is the commonality among all the sorts of fossil fuels that they're hydrogen carbon uh, atom-based, that, that kind of substance exists with unfathomable abundance underground, but just most of it we don't yet have the technology to transform. But every year we get better and better and better. So I, I don't See, I don't see a problem with waste of that any more than I do of steel 
or anything else. I mean, you can waste it. It's not in your economic interest to do so. But I think there's a there's I don't really have that for for me. Waste is not the issue. It's the main the main thing is is that we figure out more and more technology to harness it more abundantly, and at and at the same time harness other raw materials more abundantly. Raw materials like like uranium uh, for nuclear power, thorium for nuclear power, hydro, you know, at some point hydrogen for fusion power. And then we, we shouldn't be in a world where we're worried about just getting every little scrap and making sure we use it. We should live in a world of abundance where we just have an amazing creative capacity. So do you think that, and, and I, I 100% agree that we have an basically almost an infinite amount of resources that are available, especially as technology enables us to access those uh, materials and utilize them properly. Um, but do you think the scarcity and, and some of the, the thinking behind fossil fuels has been artificially created just to keep the prices at a certain level? That's an interesting category of question that isn't raised that often, which is kind of interesting because the people who are usually against fossil fuels talk about their scarcity. But of course, if they were right, then they should be happy, right? Because they're usually <laughs> saying, well, if we're running out of them, that would be good news. Uh, but in fact, what they want to do is they want to force us to act as if we've run out of them. That's what it means to prohibit someone from using something, right? So if, if, we're, if we're prohibited from using the vast majority of coal, oil, and gas, it's as if we are running out of them. And what's interesting is that those policies jack up the profit margins for the producers, at least for the producers who are left in existence. And interestingly, so it's interesting that the the people who, so that what that can lead to is that certain, in my view, short-sighted companies can be in favor of certain kinds of restrictions, thinking that they'll end up on the top, they'll end up with a high profit margin. But in general, the industry is pretty good at being in favor of free competition, even though it can be very difficult. And the... Uh, you know, as as I'm speaking now in in early 2016, we have very very low oil and gas prices, and this certainly hurts the profit margins of many many companies. And many companies are going out of business, and yet they voluntarily chose to produce more. This is what happens in a free market. You, especially if you're producing a commodity, you have the choice to produce or not produce, but usually you produce as much as you can uh, for what you think will be the market price. And sometimes you produce so much, you're so eager to produce that the market price becomes, there's an abundance and the market price becomes less than what you expected and you lose money. So I, I think the companies should be praised for not, not trying to create artificial scarcity and it's actually the greens who are creating the artificial scarcity and quote windfall profits for some people, or at least they would if they succeeded. Uh, let's talk about uh, chapter four, the greenhouse effect and the fertilizer effect, because um, I think one of the, the, the major stumbling blocks for, for a lot of groups right now is they're, they're woefully uneducated or they're, educa they're overeducated in the wrong information. Uh, and really, you've got people, you've got like a rowboat with two people in the rowboat rowing against each other, whether if they were working together, we actually might see some progress and help the situation instead of all this mudslinging. So um, what do you think about uh, the greenhouse effect? Well, first is is how to think about it. I mentioned earlier that my conclusion comes from looking at the big picture of what benefits human life. That means carefully looking at all the positives and all the negatives. And when you're entering a field, you don't even know what's uh, a positive or a negative. And, and that's what we have to do with, with CO2. So we know that when we 
burn a hydrocarbon, we release oxygen, uh, rather uh, the the carbon bonds with the oxygen, bonds with oxygen in the atmosphere rather, and becomes CO2 and then hydrogen becomes H2O. But CO2, we make more of a significant effect on, on the quantity of it. So, so far we've increased it from 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04% of the atmosphere. And it's important to investigate uh, what, if any, influence this has on the global climate system and in particular temperatures. So that's a very uh, it's an absolutely necessary sort of thing to do, but you should do it calmly and without Armageddon assumptions. And you can you can say, well, maybe it's true that there's an Armageddon type thing, but maybe it's true that there's just a mild influence and it isn't that big a deal. Maybe it's slightly positive, maybe it's slightly negative. And at the same time, you also have to consider what I call the fertilizer effect, which is the fact that more CO2 in the atmosphere could be expected to lead to uh, more plant growth because the way we ourselves engineer plant growth in greenhouses is to put much more CO2 in the greenhouse than naturally exists in the air. And it's interesting how on both sides of this debate, you don't see this kind of calm examination of the CO2 byproduct of fossil fuels. You see, It's often divided into this, well, do you believe it or do you deny it? But that's not really the issue. The issue is what's, what's the magnitude and what's the impact on human life. And so in the, the chapter, I investigate it. And I, I conclude that based on the evidence we have, there's not, there's not really evidence that there is any kind of runaway warming and massive warming that we can expect, let alone climate catastrophe. Uh, we can expect mild warming. And uh, one, one aspect of the greenhouse effect that I stress that is very little known and this is blatant dishonesty on the on the process of the scientific on the the part of the scientific establishment for for not uh, making this clear. The greenhouse effect, if you isolate it, the the to the extent it's proven, it's what's called a logarithmic effect, or uh, an easier way to think of it as a decelerating effect. So every new molecule of CO two that you uh, add to the atmosphere has less of a warming impact than the last. So one analogy I like to use for this is is when you're driving your car over sixty miles an hour. You know, every millimeter you push down after that doesn't have the same accelerating effect. You get diminishing returns. Otherwise, you know, your Honda Civic could go 800 miles an hour, but it doesn't. You know, at a certain point, every little bit of gas you add adds less speed than the last. And that's, when, that's what happens with the greenhouse effect when you isolate it. So it's not the kind of thing you would expect by default, given what we know about it in a lab, to lead to this runaway warming. But people don't point out, they don't acknowledge that it's a logarithmic or decelerating effect because that leads to a lack of hysteria. Now, people do have theories that somehow say, well, even though it's a decelerating effect in the lab, in the atmosphere, it'll be an accelerating effect. And I would say that they haven't demonstrated that at all. And the opposite has turned out to be the case. But in any case, just as a matter of honesty, they should say, look, this is what we know for sure. This is a real effect. It's a decelerating effect. Let's start there. But, but people don't because they're, they're very incentivized for various reasons to turn something that's a real but relatively inconsequential phenomenon into a catastrophic phenomenon. Do you think that's being caused because of the hysteria of the media and their uh, inability to actually communicate properly and then to exasperate that the average uh, person, especially in North America, is uh, too busy or too lazy to actually research it themselves and find out what the truth is. So they just take it at face value. And this is what's caused all this weird perception. Well, it's considered very bad form to, uh, to criticize scientific professionals, but they, they definitely deserve the bulk of the blame here, both through uh, a certain 
vocal minority of them, usually administrator hacks, uh, voicing voicing support for this catastrophic theory, and then, or at least catastrophic set of predictions, definitely wouldn't qualify as a theory, but then <laughs> the vast majority of people, of scientists not speaking up when claims such as 97% of scientists agree with some vague idea of global warming, and you know, not, not standing up. But this, this is a, people have a really wrong conception of how science works, and, and, and in particular how the dissemination of scientific opinions work. Uh, per, first of all, you have to recognize that science as practiced in the United States and in most countries is a monopoly. So it is, it is, a, it is owned the vast majority of it is owned by the government because the government funds it. And that's very important because the government has to decide which aspects of science to fund and then what its purpose is in funding them. And the whole genesis, this is a matter of public record, the whole genesis of mass interest in climate science, which didn't exist before the 70s, was this particular claim by a particular group of, of high, you know, people who wanted a high level of government intervention that... Uh, that capitalism in the form of its dominant fuel, fossil fuels, was leading to this kind of uh, catastrophe. So that it's, that it's the catastrophic scenario that led to the government's involvement in the first place. And therefore, people who believed in that, they were the ones who got funding and they tended to dominate the field. And then it becomes, uh, it becomes a monopoly. And then if you have a dissenting view, yeah, you could try to really prominently argue against it, but you're not going to get funding. And if you're really prominent, you can get punished. Just as if you were, in a mono if you were running a monopoly oil company, like there was only one uh, oil company, let's say in Saudi Arabia, you go against the you know, oil company in Saudi Arabia, well, good luck. You know, if you want to work in that industry, good luck publicly opposing that. So there, there are these monopoly dynamics, and what they lead to is not that every scientist becomes duped, but that scientists are incentivized to either say catastrophic things, which the less responsible ones do, or to say nothing, which the vast majority uh, of them do. And those who do something are castigated as as uh, as deniers. So it's it's fundamentally the government's responsibility and the scientific establishment's responsibility. And the more the media misrepresents it, the more they have an obligation uh, to speak up. So there have been many many individuals who have, and, and I've had a series of them on on my podcast. Uh, power hour, which you know is on all the standard places like iTunes. And it's been fascinating to hear from these very esteemed scientists what's happened to them when they've spoken up. And when you hear their horror stories, you can understand why others wouldn't. But guess what? If you're a scientist, it's your obligation to speak up. So uh, you know, I criticize every individual who fails to speak up. Well, basically, if you're not speaking up to something that you know is the truth, um, then you're part of the problem. That's just basic. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, it, it it's hard. And even I think one thing that happens is that people in in other scientific fields are reluctant to even investigate it because they they know. I mean, think about it. You, or how motivated are you to investigate an issue where you know that if you come out at all dissenting, at all critical, you are going to be in big trouble. And today, scientists tend to be more isolated than previous generations for various reasons, more hyper-specialized. So they're not the kinds of people who are going to, uh, they'll often say, oh, well, the, there's this expectation that, well, just as, the, just as the shoemaker is really good at making shoes, so the climate 
predictor is really good at, at predicting climate, but you have to be open to the possibility, well, maybe no one can do climate prediction, and therefore the most confident climate predictor is like the most confident soothsayer or fortune teller, and it's not very responsible of them to claim they can do something that they can't, and certainly uh, predicting climate a uh, hundred years out is not something they can do, and certainly there's no basis for thinking that that uh, 0.01% CO2 is going to be the big driver of climate. Do you think we're living in an over-paranoid society? You know, you, you look at um, crime rates and, and the risk of going outside and, and actually being murdered or, or something violent happening to you compared to what was happening 40, 50 years ago when, you know, children were just running around doing their thing. Um, these days, you know, kids, they don't get to play outside because the parents are so terrified that they're going to get whisked away. Is it the same situation with uh, things like uh, CO2 levels and, and pollution in, in North America? Are those levels going down, uh, and are we just being overly paranoid and will never be satisfied with the results? Well, in terms of what we call pollution, it's important to distinguish between air pollution uh, versus a, a greenhouse gas. So greenhouse gas poses no air pollution risk whatsoever. To call it a pollutant is, is very misleading, uh, whereas something like sulfur dioxide, which is a component of smog, if you have that in a sufficient concentration, that can certainly be unhealthy. And then part of the discussion is what's a sufficient concentration because poison and health and all these things all have to do with dosage. In certain dosage, just about anything is innocuous. In certain dosage, just about anything is, is dangerous. And in terms of that, yeah, it's, it, there is a parallel because people – were we have far lower – uh, doses of any of this stuff in the atmosphere than really we've ever had, because even in the time of the caveman, you're breathing in all kinds of stuff through, through smoke from your your fires. So our air has never been as clean, our water has never been as clean, and that kind of hysteria is is just baseless. Now, it's with CO two, it's a different issue. There's certainly more CO two in the atmosphere than there has been at any point during you know our, our lifetime, certainly for for a while actually. But the question is, has that led to any degree of warmth? that's uh, particularly scary. Uh, and I'd say absolutely not. And and one interesting statistic, and it's always good to look at the big picture statistics, just like you mentioned with things like crime. Uh, the big picture statistic that's never mentioned with climate is how many people, if climate's getting more dangerous, how many more people are dying from climate-related causes? And you notice that's not a statistic you ever hear cited. Uh, and the reason is because it completely contradicts what we're told. Because as we've used more fossil fuels to generate energy, which means as we've also generated more CO2 as a byproduct, uh, the rate of climate-related deaths has plummeted. Your, your chance of dying from a, a storm or a flood or uh, extreme heat or extreme cold, it's actually gone down by a factor of 50 in the last 80 years. So you're 50 times safer from climate than you used to be. In, in the 30s, we had millions and millions of people dying from climate. You know, Now we have, in the whole world, now we'll have 30,000 a year or so. And the reason is because uh, the primary issue with climate is not how much CO2 exactly is in the climate. The primary issue with climate is do we have the do we have the level of development and infrastructure to protect ourselves from the inherent volatility and danger of climate so nature doesn't give us a safe climate or a stable climate that we make dangerous and unstable it gives us a dangerous and unstable climate that we have to make safe through development and and fossil fuels are crucial to developing and to powering a developed society so this this is another issue where people don't look at the big picture 
And I would just say that your your general observation though is very important, and it goes to also just how do we think about risk. And I think one crucial thing with thinking about risk is you always have to think about not just what is the risk of doing something, but what is the risk of not doing something. So people talk about the risks of fracking. Well, what are the risks of not fracking? Those could be a lot larger and I think are. And the same thing is true with a child. Like You talk about the risk of letting your child go around, which fortunately I'm, I'm 35. I was allowed to roam around all over the mean streets of Washington, D.C. as a kid, <laughs> which I'm very gl- grateful for. But you know, if they just locked me in a room with orange juice, you know, what's the risk of that? You're not a full human being who can enjoy and, and thrive in life. And to me, that's, that's, that's fatal. Well, it's also the, the you know there's the new study that shows that um, if you if you live in too clean an environment, you'll end up getting sicker because your body isn't challenged. Yeah. It, it it's all about you know if you're in a perfect environment where everything's perfect and everything's clean, your body's not challenged, so it's not going to grow and it'll become weaker. So you know it, it's very very interesting, and that's what I find fascinating about the book because it's so refreshing to read a book that enables you to actually sit back and go, you know, I, I haven't actually thought of it that way. And it, it gives you pause. And I think not enough people are pausing. They're just like on Facebook and then freaking out when somebody said some unfounded statement and joining the bandwagon because they think, oh, well, if it's fossil fuels, it's got to be bad. And not actually learning about it or understanding it any way. And I think that's one of the major problems we got right now is is a highly agitated, uneducated um, people that are just spreading uh, malicious rumor. It's crazy what's going on right now. I like what you said about the, or rather, I think it's true. So I, I like it because it's true. But <laughs> it's an important fact that this this phenomenon of uh, a certain amount of quote unquote dirtiness is necessary to human health. And, and what this indicates to me is, is a too rare a method of thinking, which is to think of things carefully in terms of how they impact human life without the assumption that any kind of human impact on the world must be bad and that the, the key to health is somehow scrubbing human impact from the world. So if we put more CO2, that must be a disaster. Or if we change anything, create any dirt, that must be a disaster. Uh, whereas if, if you look at the, the big picture, it's uh, tremendously good for us to impact the earth if, if you care about human beings. And it's not true that, that trying to make the world free of anything human created is somehow uh, a good thing. You need to look at it scientifically. You need to look at, at the big picture of things. And when you look at that, you see something like uh, f- using fossil fuels is overall very healthy and, and getting healthier. Another example of this is the issue of, of efficiency, which sort of relates to the issue of waste that you brought up earlier. But maybe a way to frame this is we're taught that the ideal in life environmentally is to minimize our impact on our environment. And I think that's exactly the wrong view. We should, we should change our environment or not based on what maximizes human well-being. And, and that means to change it a lot in a lot of different uh, ways. And if you look at, say, the issue of efficiency, efficiency is often thought of as Let's just, as an end in itself, minimize any waste, any byproduct, and even any usage uh, of, of energy. But look at what happens when you take that in the context of a home. So I say, I'm going to, I'm going to make my home as energy efficient as possible in a cold area. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to insulate the heck out of it. I'm going to close all the windows. 
But guess what? That can lead to its own problems, right? Because I don't have any ventilation. So it's, quote, efficient in a certain sense, but it's not efficient for human well-being. And I think when we talk about efficiency, it should always be what's efficient for human well-being uh, versus what's efficient for minimizing our presence on the planet. Because if, if you want to minimize our presence on the planet, I think that's a really immoral goal, and you should certainly start with yourself. Well, I think also that, uh, you know, going back to, to um, over-insulating your home and then causing uh, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning becomes a big danger, whereas if you have a, a home that, that's got, uh, you know, unexpected ventilation, it always seems to be chilly because of a breeze going through the house, then you don't have to worry about that. So uh, a lot of the technology or, or, or um, fossil, fuel fossil fuel developments going on right now, uh, is it that people just don't get how efficient uh, we're extracting this stuff compared to 30, 40 years ago or 50, 60 years ago? Um, is it that uh, what we're doing with the waste products is a lot less damaging than it was you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago? Of course, because the technology that we have now, because of those fossil fuels, enables us to do that. So in your research for this, were you able to see some of those results or, 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 or comparisons where, you know, how they utilized oil in, in 1850, the wastage, uh, compared to the use of oil that comes out of the ground now and, and how much they actually utilize it for through refining? Is that a drastic difference? It is a drastic difference, uh, and I'll elaborate on that in a second. But I think that the method by which we're, we're taught to think or not think about this issue makes people hostile to fossil fuels no matter how efficient they are. And in fact, hostile to other forms of energy such as nuclear energy, hydroelectric energy, and even in the scheme of things, solar and wind energy to the extent those become prominent. Uh, and, and I think the reason is that there's this, there's this ideal that we should minimize our impact on the planet. And as I said, that's an anti-human ideal because human beings survive by impacting nature, by transforming nature. Now, it's true that in the process of transforming nature, we can we have different kinds of risks and byproducts, and what you're indicating is that we get better and better uh, at dealing with those, and we can turn, in fact, more byproducts into products. So oil, 50% of it used to be useless, and you dump it in the lake. Now, basically, 100% of it is useful, and you can make surgical instruments out of the stuff that used to be dumped in the lake, or you can make lubricants. So it's just completely unbelievable what the modern uh, industry can do. But to appreciate that, you have to be on the premise of transforming nature is good, impacting nature is good. That's part of, of human life. If you're on the premise that that's bad, that any impact is bad, you're going to always have this, this suspicion that anything we do, anything we emit is toxic and grounds for dismissal of the technology. So any imperfection is grounds for illegality. And this is what you find with something like fracking, where people will try to point out one earthquake in one place under one set of circumstances and then say, let's throw the whole thing out. Whereas versus even if that were true, why wouldn't you just look at those particular circumstances and say, well, let's make sure the law covers those, but not let's throw out this whole uh, this whole positive technology. So people again have this this view of they only list, look at the risk of doing something versus the risk of not doing something, and that's because the whole focus on minimizing impact has taken away or even uh, eliminated a focus on hey let's look at what it does overall for human life. That's what really matters. So with that focus, yeah, it's unbelievable how much more efficiently we can mine coal, how much more efficiently we can burn coal, 
what we can do with oil in terms of using every little bit uh, of the barrel, you know, what we can do with natural gas. Natural gas used to be something that killed you because it exploded when you drilled for oil. And now it's the, you know, by far the cleanest fossil fuel has, and has a lot of really good use cases from heating homes to helping you make synthetic products to even it's, it's starting to be used in cars. So if, if you have that pro-human, pro-technology perspective, it's a really great success story. But if you have that anti-human, anti-impact perspective, you'll always find something wrong with it and you'll continually demand policies that will, will dramatically hurt people by depriving them of these these technologies. And they say the same thing about solar, by the way. Once solar becomes big enough, like let's say in the Mojave Desert even, they were building this project, and guess who, was the, guess who the biggest opponents were? The Greens. Because they said, look, this has a lot of impact. And of course it does, because to, deal, to try to harness something like the sun, which is very dilute, very unreliable, you need massive, massive amounts of storage and then massive, massive amounts of uh, solar panels to cover lots of area. So if, if you really believe human impact is bad, the only thing to do is, is to stop taking action and die because any form of energy is going to have a big impact. We just want to make sure that impact is as positive for human beings as possible. Well, I think also, you know, going back to hydroelectric power and, and, and solar power uh, as like uh, less impactful, of course, there's going to be some impact, but you got to look at the comparisons like, okay, so we're going to flood X amount of hectares of land, or we're going to fill certain amount of hectares of land with reflective devices that can take, uh, create energy from the sun. Look at the benefit of it. Like, what are we getting for doing that? Does it equal or does it... Um, enable us to move forward? Does it enable us to not have to use uh, uh, as many uh, dirty fuels, that say coal, uh, to, to do stuff? And I think that's what the problem is, is that you just got, everybody's a naysayer these days. So no matter what you do, they're going to bitch at you about it. And no matter what you do, they're going to be complaining. So at, at the end of the day, they're just basically making it easier for you to just okay, well, I'm not even going to bother considering you guys because no matter what I say, no matter what I do, you're going to bitch about it. So what you say, I don't care about anymore. Do you think this is the way that a lot of large um, energy organizations are perceiving the uh, the groundswell of, of people that are constantly harping about this and that? Well, I wish they were as unsuccessful as that line of reasoning would imply <laughs> because they've been quite successful and in particular with nuclear power in the 70s, just where they just completely manufactured all these safety hoaxes and basically everything they said was the reverse of the truth because nuclear power is the cleanest source of power ever invented, cleaner than solar and wind if you look at the whole process. And it's the certainly the safest form of power, if, again, compared to everything. And it has a lot of exciting potential because you're getting this the uh, the density of the energy that you can extract from uranium or thorium is just is just millions of potentially millions of times greater than even something like coal or oil, which have very dense energy themselves, compared to something like you know, the, the sunlight, or rays of sun, and gusts of wind. So they're enormously successful at, at demonizing these things. Now, they haven't shut down all of civilization. They haven't gotten us back to the cave, but I'm not very reassured by that. And, and they're still working on it very aggressively in terms of getting fossil fuels largely abolished on the basis of this uh, idea of, of climate catastrophe. I want to challenge, though, the idea of coal as a dirty fuel. 
Sure. I don't believe that any fuel is clean or dirty because I, I think you have to look at every form of energy in terms of the process, not just one of the inputs. So if you take, say, the inputs to the process right now that goes into manufacturing a, a wind turbine, uh, you have the uh, wind turbine. Sorry, people in the industry hate it when you say turbine. Uh, you, you know, look at the the process of manufacturing a wind turbine. Extracting the metal for that is incredibly, incredibly uh, dangerous and hazardous, just because of the nature of the metal is that it exists in a very low concentration. So you need all sorts of difficult and uh, often uh, hazardous processes to to get to separate out that metal. You create all sorts of radioactive waste. People get their lakes contaminated, and it occurs in China a lot, which doesn't help anything. And indeed, in the U.S., they they ban a lot of these practices. I don't think they should, but I think you can do them safely. But it just shows how hazardous they are. So if you just look at the wind, you say, "Oh, the wind looks pretty clean." But then if you look at the metal involved to harness the wind, you could say, "Well, that's really dirty." And the same thing could be true for coal. You could say, "Oh, the coal looks dirty in the sense of it has this, and if I burn it straight, it, there's going to be a lot of smoke, and it'll be unpleasant." But what if you can purify the coal, or what if you can burn it in such a way that you just get gas out of it, which it's called coal gasification? Then maybe you can get, uh, you know, you can process it very cleanly. So I think the thing is to look at what are the energy technologies or energy processes, and how much benefit do they have for how much cost? And I think if you look at that, you you see very exciting innovation uh, across the board. And I think if people think of things in terms of technologies and processes rather than raw materials, they start to understand why we use fossil fuels so much. And it's because we've developed these processes to harness this naturally concentrated, stored, plentiful set of materials. We've developed processes to get that out of the ground very efficiently, to find it very efficiently in the first place, and then to harness it in these different forms and also to purify it increasingly well. Whereas with the sun and the wind, uh, we don't have nearly as good technologies to concentrate it and certainly to store it. So right now, on basically every grid that has solar and wind, they're just parasites on the on the grid. Since you can't rely on them 100% of the time, then the grid 100% of the time has to be uh, ready, has to have the capacity to exist as if they weren't there. So they just become this this dead weight or this burden that also adds a lot of instability because. Uh, you don't know exactly when they're going to come, and you have to scale. You have to stop and go the rest of the energy sources to compensate for the solar and wind. So, so if people get the process issue, they can see, oh, here's what would be needed for these technologies to become resource efficient. Whereas now people think, oh, the sun, there's a lot of that. Why don't we just use that? And before I started studying energy, that was certainly my mentality. So I can relate to it, but upon examination, it does not make any sense. Well, there's a couple of cool, cool points you made there. Uh, one was the, the basically the lazy extraction of energy from the resources is probably the biggest problem where if we are able to refine and, and make the extraction uh, efficient and clean, then what's the problem with coal? Or what's the problem with this? Or what's the problem with that? Do you think that we're um, extracting energy in a lazy way or, or, or less efficient way than we could? And do you think that's one way of, of swaying people's opinion to a more positive attitude towards this industry? Well, you can always do better. And actually, if you talk to people in industry, their tendency is to think, oh, if we can only do a little bit better, then people will like us. And my view is 
keep doing things better because that's the right thing to do, but that's not what's going to make people like you or dislike you. Because even even take modern coal technology, it's not like this is Britain in the 1800s or even the 1900s or or China today for that matter. We have modern coal plants that are that deliver some of the cleanest energy that's been available in human history. You have places like North Dakota, which are dominantly coal powered for electricity, that have very very that have the highest grade of clean air. So the people have these mental models of just these immense amounts of pollution coming into their air, giving them asthma, you know, ruining their lives, causing all these numbers of deaths. You hear all these projections that have absolutely no basis at all. Uh, they're just extrapolations from, well, if you filled the whole, if you filled all the air with a cloud of smoke, then if you fill a, a tiny percentage of that, well, then someone has to die. But that doesn't prove it at all. I mean, it's like saying, well, if you smoke one cigarette in your lifetime, then you're going to die because someone who smokes uh, a million cigarettes dies dies prematurely. So there are all these these fallacies of uh, of dosage. So I think the key thing is that it, the whole issue needs to be reframed into what is overall healthy for human life. And the fossil fuel industry should say, look, we started out with a healthy product that helped double the human lifespan, literally, and we're making it healthier and healthier. So it's cleaner and cleaner, but it's not, oh, we're not as dirty as we used to be. And if you have that perspective, then sure, there's all sorts of cool things going on in terms of coal gasification and what's called coal to liquids, where you can purify different things. And then I've seen different technologies for burning it more cleanly, which is a really exciting type of thing because if you can if you can somehow make the burning process just burn you know the carbon and the hydrogen without burning the other elements that are the problem when they get in the air, that's really exciting too. And I think that's where the enthusiasm of the culture should be much more that we have well, we have these advanced hydrocarbon, advanced fossil fuel technologies, not just this idea of well, let's let's aspire to some way or another, in some future replace it with the the sun in some way that we have no idea how this would happen it's just a bizarre thing i mean it's it's like uh i think of it as you know instead of finding even better metals for making skyscrapers or some new state of the art material we keep trying to make them out of renewable wood and they're like oh well we'll this here's a new way to, to use wood and you say well why would you use wood it's Go for it, but it's not very promising. And certainly, as a society, we shouldn't aspire to renewable skyscrapers. We should aspire to the best skyscrapers, whatever. And and you can't, you shouldn't predict or prejudge where they should come from. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's uh, the morality opinion. Uh, a lot of times, nine times out of ten, I would say, uh, tends to be uh, fueled on emotion and not fact. And uh, I think that's a lot of the reason there's so much confusion going on right now. One of the big things with power is the transportation of power and the inefficiency of the transportation. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, let's get wind farms happening. So you have this big wind farm. But by the time you've transported that uh, wind energy uh, to the source where they can actually utilize it, it's not really that efficient. And so do you think that the ability to... Um, gather and create uh, energy um, pools uh, within neighborhood is and then distribute it within maybe only a, a one or two mile or one or three or four kilometer area is a more efficient way of doing it or do you think our grid structure of uh, power distribution is a better way I think in general the the grid is a way better way I mean what what you would need 
you have to think about what what the specs would be if if you really wanted a more local system, and really you'd have to have something that's really cheap and reliable that you can have right near you. And in terms of that, it, it would almost have to be some sort of nuclear reactor behind that, maybe a natural gas plant, right? Because then with the nuclear reactor, certainly there would be no kind of air emissions that would be any threat, and you could theoretically just put it underground, and maybe you'd have a backup one or something like that. But even there, if you think of what's a backup nuclear reactor cost, that's a lot of money. So part of the grid, what's great about the grid is you have this incredibly, uh, you know, this, this long-distance ability for lots and lots of different nodes on the network, these, these different power generators to uh, scale up, scale down, and go online, go offline as needed. And the problem with the, – so the wind, yeah, it, it, it's always just an issue of what's the overall efficiency of the process. So you can imagine that, well, may, maybe there is a form of energy – let's say – let's just say as an example that coal wasn't as clean as it is now, but it was 100 times cheaper than everything else. So then you could say, well, let's, and I mean in terms of particulate matter in the atmosphere. So you could say, well, let's put, put a coal plant where no one is for 100 miles, right? And then let's do that so that no one, you know, no, no one will have any of the consequences for breathing the particulate, but we'll get this, this uh, really cheap energy. And then the high voltage transmission lines would be a relatively low price to pay for it. But with a wind, you know, wind turbine, it's not that exciting because the, you've got this fundamental problem of, A, it's pretty expensive to build this massive skyscraper thing in the first place, and B, it's, it's delivering an intermittent or unreliable power source. So that's, if you're a grid operator, if you're operating any enterprise, the last thing you want is an unreliable input to deal with. That's not a, a very exciting prospect. So I think of it as, well, if I'm running my company and you know, somebody has to drive to work uh, you know, two hours a day and I have to pay for that. Well, if they're a really efficient worker, I might do that. But if they, you know, take three days off a week and I don't know when those three days are going to be, and actually four days would be a better analogy for wind, then why would I hire them? So the, the wind has, yeah, the transmission lines are one issue, but the, the, the broader way of thinking is just think of the cost of the process overall. The moral case for fossil fuels. We've been chatting with Alex Epstein. And uh, before we go, where can people go to learn more and keep educating themselves? Best place is uh, my organization, which is called the Center for Industrial Progress, and that is at industrialprogress.com. That's industrialprogress.com. And there should be a link. There, there will be a link to the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, there. And if you find it intriguing, uh, I hope you also just sign up for our, our weekly uh, mailing because that will apply some of these these ideas and, and particularly the method of thinking to all the different current issues that come up in the news. Oh, plus you got your podcast too. W will you be able to get to the podcast through that website? Yeah, you'll be able to get to the podcast and the newsletter always includes the podcast. So I just, or the, the mailing list, I just always encourage people to get that because no matter what, they'll be uh, they'll be kept current. But yeah, thanks for uh, rem remembering that. And that's that's called Power Hour. If pe Power Hour with Alex Epstein. If people want to uh, uh, to to check that out, we've been fortunate enough to have some like maybe 120 different energy experts come on the show and discuss different issues. So if you have if you're interested in any of the particular issues that came up today or many, many others, uh, you can just look through the index of that and you'll see we, we've covered just about anything, everything. And if we haven't, then 
tell me and we'll cover what we haven't covered. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.